0: are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. teaching text comes from Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed by his teaching, because he had taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, Trinity Grace, John Mark Comer here from Portland, Oregon. Love to all of you. My son, Jude, and I were with you last fall, which feels, in COVID time, feels like forever ago. But we fell in love with you. Tyler and I have been friends for a number of years now, and I have such a deep love and respect in my heart for your lead pastor. But I fell in love with all of your leadership team, and Gemma, hi to all of you, and everyone there. Your community was just rich with love. It was a really... Um, Beautiful experience for my son and I. So thank you for the invite. I look forward to, in theory, a post-COVID world where I get to visit you again. In the meantime, just know that we are thinking about you, praying for you. The whole world is living through a global pandemic right now and more, but I know it's especially, or I imagine it's especially hard for those of you in New York and just the pain of your city. So we love you. We pray for you. May you come out the other side, not just the city, but you as a church, as a Community of followers of Jesus, more about the kingdom of God than ever before. Now, rumor has it you have been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. I am a fan. I experienced the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7, to be the greatest collection of teachings on the human condition in the history of human civilization. It's just Rabbi Jesus at his best. And uh, Tyler asked me to kind of wind down your teaching series. And the beautiful thing, or really a, a fascinating thing, thing about the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus does not end it with a touching story or a kind of rally pep talk or an acronym, but with a very sober warning. Let's read the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. To start off, before we get into the text, how about a little bit of sociology? Three ideas from three seminal thinkers over the last century. First off, Buckminster Fuller. He started out, take a look at this guy, at his, as an architect. He invented the geodesic dome. Those of you from Florida or Disney World. But in time, he became well-known as a futurist and kind of systems theorist. In his book, Critical Path, he came up with what we now call the knowledge doubling curve. He estimated that from, G- from the year of Jesus' birth, it took 1,500 years for all knowledge to double. From there though, it doubled every in 250 years. From there, it doubled every 100 years up until about World War II. By the 80s, it was at every 12 months. And now some estimates, depending on who you Google, put the number at every 12 hours. Do the math. If you were born the same year as Jesus, It would take a millennium and a half for the cumulative information of human civilization to double. If you were born tomorrow, in a hypothetical scenario, it would double twice before you go to bed that night. So, thought one. We have more information than ever before. For good reason. Ours is called the information age. Secondly, Thomas Friedman, who is from your city, in his book, Thank You for Being Late, writes about what he calls the age of acceleration. Everything in our era has just sped up to this frenetic pace. This graph from his work shows that technology is increasing faster than the human capacity to adapt. We literally can't keep up with the pace of change. And all of this has created an age of anxiety. We feel at a a chronic level, we just feel always behind the curve, running to play catch-up, stressed out and tired all of the time from the pace of change. Anxiety and low-grade exhaustion are the new normal. Thought two, we feel overwhelmed at an emotional level by all of the information. Finally, number three, Neil Postman, cultural commentator and media critic from NYU. His book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is legendary. It's like one of the most important books I've ever read. He coined the phrase information-to-action ratio. By that, he meant how much information we put into action in our life. He writes, quote, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commandment Commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it. We don't know what to do with it. He points to the invention not of the internet or Wi-Fi or the smartphone, but to the telegraph actually a while back as the turning point in kind of human history. With the telegraph, for the first time, information, in particular news, could travel across the world at lightning speed. News became disconnected from your life, your time, your place, and your capacity to do anything about the news. Before, really, the only, before the telegram, Really, the only news you ever heard was local, and the odds were your town was a few hundred people, or maybe it was a few thousand people. Of course, there were exceptions in London or New York, but most of the world was small. So if you heard bad news, you could, not only could you, you were expected to do something about it. If you heard, you know, Joe's barn is on fire. You would not like start a hashtag, let's end this in our generation, or a blog post or a video series. You would grab your bucket and run over to Joe's house and help him put out the fire. Now we hear all sorts of news from all over the world all of it, for the most part, bad, and most of us have zero ability to do anything about it. This is behind so much of the rage over the political situation. What this creates in us is a state of being used to hearing vast amounts of information and then feeling powerless, and either we feel anger or we just, most of us, slide into apathy and we do nothing about it. As the saying goes, in one ear, out the other or what Postman called a low information-to-action ratio. So to recap, three ideas. One, we have more information than ever before in human history. Two, we feel overwhelmed by all of that information. And three, we're used to hearing all sorts of information, even feeling moved by it, and then doing nothing about it. But for Jesus, this just won't do. Let's work through his teaching line by line. Again, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, by these words of mine, Jesus is referring to the last three chapters, or what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, which was not called the Sermon on the Mount at the time. It was just called Jesus is up on the Mount, and he's teaching, and it's brilliant, and we're all here. Now, let me nerd out on you for just a three, just two or three minutes, and let me just unleash my inner homeschooler on you. I'm so sorry. Let me pull back the curtain of Matthew's literary genius. The writers of the Bible, not that the Spirit is not involved, but man, they have far, they are far more intelligent than most of us give them credit for. Case in point, the Gospel of Matthew is divided into five blocks. Each of the five blocks ends with an in-depth teaching from Jesus, and each of the teachings end with the catchphrase, Quote, when Jesus had finished saying these things you see that in a minute in verse 28 that's like a little literary clue from the writer Matthew hey you've come to the end of block 1 now the five blocks of Matthew as a whole mirror the five books of the Torah or the Bible of Jesus day Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and Jesus five teachings in the five blocks mirror Moses' five sermons in Deuteronomy. This is like Christopher Nolan-level dream-within-a-dream sophistication. It's Matthew's creative, smart, literary way of saying that Jesus is a new Moses, he's teaching a new Torah, he's leading a new exodus for a new Israel into a new kingdom of God. But It gets better. One of the reasons Matthew does this is because numerology was popular at the time all over the ancient world. It comes as no surprise that we find numerology in the Sermon on the Mount. If you outline, this is just no need to do this, but if you outline the Sermon on the Mount, there's an intro the Beatitudes, Blessed Are. Then there's a thesis, like you are the light of the world, your city on a hill, all of that. Then there are 14 teachings that all flow together, one kind of train of thought, and then there's an outro, what we're working through right now. Now, each of the 14 teachings that together make up the Sermon on the Mount have what scholars call a triadic structure, which is just a pretentious way of saying a three-part structure. In the language of Dr. Glenn Stassen, who's an ethicist from Fuller Seminary, they have one, a traditional teaching. Think of the first one in chapter five. You have heard it said, do not murder. Then two, a diagnosis of the kind of the vicious cycle of the human condition. Um, in that one, it's you know anyone who sins against their brother calls them raka, and Jesus is starting to deal with how anger is based at some point in contempt, where you look down your nose not just at the behavior of another person, but at the whole person, and from a position of moral superiority, and that just does deep damage to any kind of relationship, from a marriage to a nation state. And then three, a transforming initiative in Stassen's language, which in that one, you know, where Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Just a small, creative, practical, tangible, anybody can do this step to take, to move forward, to make an idea a reality in your body and life. Now, all that to say, seven and three were both numbers in numerology that were symbolic of perfection. And there are 14 sets of three. Dr. Stassen writes, To Matthew in his Jewish culture, seven is a number of completeness and goodness, like the seven days in which God created the earth. Fourteen is double completeness and goodness. Double rainbow, if you remember that. There is also a number of completeness. So three times fourteen is triply, doubly, complete, meaning it is good, really good. Okay, nerd out over. All of that is to say, these words of mine, end quote, In verse 24, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount, is not all that Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom of the heavens, but they are the best of the best of the best, worth your time and your attention and a lifetime of obedience. Hence, Jesus' next line, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In Greek, that's one word, practice there, poeo. It can be translated, puts them into practice or practices them or does them or acts on them or even obeys. The word is used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount take that into consideration. And 10 of those are in the outro. It's just lost in translation, but it's the same word used in verse 18, a good tree cannot poeo or bear bad fruit. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who poeo or do what I say and so on. Meaning in all three warnings that make up the outro to the Sermon on the Mount, the running theme is, It's not just enough to hear all of this information. We have to po we have to put it into practice. We have to go out into the world and do something about it, not just in our mind, but through our body. To drive the point home, Jesus tells a parable or kind of a little allegory about life in the kingdom of the heavens. Keep reading, verse 24. Whoever puts them into practice is like a wise man, or same is true for a woman, Okay, if you grew up in the church, you know the story well. Any like flannel board memories from any of you? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's like a hipster thing. No, it's not. Flannel is though, or at least it was. But the danger to that is, you know, we all know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And it doesn't always breed contempt, but most of the time it does breed indifference or apathy. So just let Like, just take a moment and let Jesus' parable arrest your heart anew. It's a parable about two home builders. One is wise and the other is foolish. Now, the word wise is phronimos in Greek. It can also be translated smart or intelligent or thoughtful or even enlightened. And the word foolish is moros in Greek, where we get the word, as you can imagine, moron. And it can be translated stupid or unenlightened. They aren't just moral words, but mental words. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner writes this, Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. There is an intelligence in morality, and there is a morality in genuine intelligence. In fact, the wise and the foolish were buzzwords in the Hebrew wisdom literature that we now call Proverbs, and in Greek philosophy and the virtue ethics of Aristotle and the ancient world. Jesus is tapping into an ongoing conversation inside and outside of Israel about who is wise and who is a fool, who is living the good life and who is not, all with his parable about a house. Now, in Jesus' day, a house was a very common metaphor. Yeah for your life as a whole. Homes were very different from ours, in particular if you live in Manhattan or whatever. It was most definitely not a studio apartment in a high rise. They were not single family homes at all, but multi-generational. You would live with your parents and your grandparents, and often if they were still alive, your great grandparents. Land was not really bought or sold much. Most of it was ancestral. And when you came of age, you either moved into another family member's house or you built an addition on your parents' home. And then three, they weren't just kind of for R&R like watch Netflix and, you know, put your feet up, they, most of you ran a business out of your home. So your house came to symbolize your life as a whole. Now, Jesus says the wise person builds her or his house or their life as a whole on the foundation of practicing Jesus' teachings as they come to us laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. The foolish person hears all of Jesus' teachings, but it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, and either they don't believe it or trust on it, or they just don't ever act on it. Notice he does not say why. Maybe they are just too busy. Maybe it's just like they work a crazy job and they're a careerist and they just have time to think about it or they have little kids or they're just, it's a busy season. Maybe it's just too hard and they don't really care to put in the effort or follow through. Maybe they're just exhausted. They just live with chronic fatigue and just the season of life or they don't have the space for it. Maybe they prefer another teacher to Jesus. Maybe they don't really trust that Jesus is actually an accurate signpost into reality. Who knows? Jesus doesn't say Why? He just, and that's brilliant, by the way, it's just genius level teaching from Jesus because there's an invitation there for you to imagine yourself as one of the home builders in Jesus' parable, and you fill in the blanks. Do you put into practice his teaching or not? And if not, why? And in the short run, here's what's what's sobering. In the short run, you can't tell the difference between those who practice Jesus' teachings and those who don't. From a distance, they look exactly the same. Maybe they work the same job at the software company or startup. Maybe they both, you know, cycle over the Brooklyn Bridge in the morning. Morning, Sarah. Morning, Joe. Whatever it is. Maybe they both walk their dog down to the park and get a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning. And they both are kind of happy enough or sanguine by personality until the flood comes. And the flood is the moment of truth. The imagery of a flood comes right out of Jesus' world. Galilee was, and still is, a dry and arid place, but there are wadis that cut through the topography and cause flash floods. Because of building codes, we don't really worry about this much anymore, but it was a huge problem for millennia, not just in Israel, but around the world. Even now, I remember back when I was in high school in the 90s, which were not nearly as cool as people would lead you to believe, but I remember my family moved up from the Bay Area of California to the Portland area, it's my first experience with like winter, really, in the Pacific Northwest or anywhere for that matter. And my parents built a house. And, you know, in California, a house has a foundation, but you kind of just put some concrete on the ground and then you build a house. In Oregon, like where there's winter and there's rain, you have to like excavate out into the ground, down six feet, and you have to like dig down, there's all sorts of building codes, you have to build this whole thing. I just remember thinking, man, what is this overkill? And then our first, I think it was our first winter there, 1996, there were floods in our city. It just there's this one year where it just rained, and it rained, and it rained, and there was a, the river kind of overflowed its banks, and there were floods all over the city, or kind of minor ones. And I remember one morning, there was this route I would drive to school every day, and it was one neighborhood over, we'd drive through, and it was kind of a, a nicer neighborhood. And there was this beautiful custom home, huge house right next to the road, and I would drive by it every day. And I just remember driving by one day and doing a double take. It was raining outside, and the house was gone. Literally was there the day before, was gone. Turned out, it was on the front page of our paper. You know, the whole thing slid off of its foundation and went all the way. Built on kind of a goldie, went all the way down to the bottom of the ravine and was destroyed. And I just still, as a sixteen-year-old kid, have this vivid image, image and memory in my mind of wow, a house. That literally was not built on a solid foundation. Jesus, that was a far more common experience in Jesus' day than in ours. And he uses that kind of word picture as a metaphor for what happens when hardship comes your way. Notice, not if hardship comes your way, but when. When the flood comes in Jesus' mind. The flood will come. We're living through one right now. All of us are in a flood, so to speak. A global pandemic, economic re- recession, social upheaval, political polarization that's worse than really, some argue, than anything since the Civil War In large parts of social media and all sorts of other things. Like it's a really hard time, not to mention whatever just you're living through in your own life or marriage or story or family of origin. The flood will come. Jesus is brutally honest about the human condition, that his way doesn't lead us out of hardship, but through hardship. And that may sound morose, but I love that about Jesus. You know, what's the adage? I think it's in M. Scott Peck's book that if you expect life to be easy, it's really hard. But in a weird, non-cynical, but in a weird kind of twist, if you expect life to be hard, it is hard. And it turns out that life actually in particular with Jesus and in the community of Jesus is actually really good and rich and beautiful, even through the hardship. This is where the rise of kind of the self-help prosperity gospel in the Western church is a crisis of faith waiting to happen because the flood will come. Life is not just one kind of endless upward mobility journey. The flood will come and it will shake the house of your life and mine to the core. It's what's happening to our nation right now, to your city and to mine. It will reveal, and here's the gift, it will reveal what our life is actually built on. If our life is built on greed and careerism and materialism and upward mobility, then the loss of a job will expose that. If our life is built on lust or addiction or sexual desire, then a divorce or singleness or, or a lost dream or a broken relationship will expose that. If your house is built on anything other than Jesus and his way, it will, quote, fall with a great crash. The word great is megale in Greek, where we, as you can imagine, get the word mega. It's a mega crash. We've all I'm guessing had front row seats to watch somebody's life implode. We see it, you know, on the internet or on TV with a celebrity on a regular basis. Pretty much pick your week and there is some kind of self-implosion of a celebrity figure. Even in the church, even celebrity pastors in the church. But often we just know it from our families and our friends and it's not always like, you know, a crisis or some like dramatic thing where we get this text message in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's just the slow unraveling of a life over years or even decades. Somebody's character catching up up to them after decades of outrunning or trying to outrun the inevitable. As the saying goes, character is destiny. I have somebody I love very much right now that I'm watching just their life, and they're much older than me. Uh, multiple marriages, all failure after failure, broken relationship, estrangement after estrangement, becoming more and more unhappy and morose. And I'm just, my heart is just, ah, somebody living in the prison of the consequences of their own decisions and the constraint of their own character. It is sobering. If those stories, not to slam anybody, it's not to judge anybody, it's for you and I to wake up. If those stories do not scare you a little, And often they happen to better men than I, better women than you. If they don't kind of just ground us a little bit in a healthy kind of fear, remember there's a healthy kind of fear? I'm like not really here to pep you up, sorry, but there's good news coming. But there is a healthy kind of fear to that. There's a healthy kind of sobering. They should arrest our heart. They should wake us up and, and cause us to examine how we are living and wake us out of apathy or indifference or compromise. And in a day and age where... You know, one, we have more information than ever before in human history. Two, we're overwhelmed by all that information. And three, we're used to hearing information and even feeling moved by that information and then doing nothing about it at all. This is a much-needed wake-up call. Information, you all know this. This is what I was there teaching with you in September, and you get this so well from Tyler and your leadership team. Information is very important. The mental maps that we believe, the the scripture, the role of Scripture in our mind, and not just in our worldview, but in our neurobiology, this is key. But information alone does not equal transformation. You can't think your way into Christ-like character. Knowing something is not the same as doing something, much less as wanting to do something. Something. Jesus was a rabbi, or he was a teacher, but the point of his teaching was not just to cram more information into your head and to make you get an A-plus test at the end of your life. It's not enough to know the Sermon on the Mount or even the Bible itself, like the back of your hand, even in the original Greek or Hebrew. That's great, but Jesus' end goal isn't to inform you, but to transform you into somebody who's like him, and in doing so, your best self. Like That's the end goal of the spiritual journey. Knowledge is a means to an end and you can't like acquire knowledge on the way, that's not how you become like Jesus. And yet, tragically, in a cultural moment where a low information-to-action ratio is the default setting, or we're just used to just mindless scrolling of information and news and tidbits on our phone, so many of us read Jesus' teachings. And in all honesty, we just, yeah, smile and nod often, and then walk away. What about you? What about me? Are we, I have to I have to ask myself this question. Are we, am I practicing the way or the teachings or the life in the kingdom that Jesus has for me in a community, the one that you're in, by the Spirit? Or is there something waiting on kind of the dock of your life or mine that the Spirit has moved you to do, a step that you know you need to take, a, a habit or a decision or a relationship, or an apology, or repentance, or a step of faith, whatever it is, are you the wise, or are you the fool? Am I the wise? Am I the fool? Now, one last line. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, just blown away, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The rabbinic style of the day was to quote another rabbi who came before you. In fact, that's still kind of the rabbinic style. Your authority was vested in a previous teacher. But Jesus did not do that. He would quote scripture, but more than often, he wasn't really an exegetical Bible teacher. He was at times. In the Sermon on the Mount, he does that. But he would just say, truly I tell you, and then boom, make a statement about reality, about the way life actually worked, and it just put language to the felt experience of the human condition. The word for that kind of resonance with that tuning fork, kind of you feel it in your bones with reality is authority or exousia in Greek. And Jesus' authority was rooted in not I studied under this teacher or I have a degree from this school or I have letters after my name. That's all great stuff. It's not a critique of that at all. But his authority was rooted in the truth of his words and the truth of his life behind the words. I love Eugene Peterson's translation. It was apparent he was living everything he was saying. The Anabaptist theologian Stanley Hauerwas has this, Jesus' life is but a commentary on the sermon, and the sermon is the exemplification of his life. What he teaches is not different from what he is. Is it any wonder that the crowds are astonished at his teachings? The most potent kind of spiritual authority doesn't come from a title, or an org chart, or from a power dynamic. It comes from when you know that what somebody is saying is true and you know it because there's a resonance with reality and because they are living proof that it is true. That's because Jesus was a sage-like teacher, but he was more. He was more than just a conduit of truth. He was truth itself. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He was the source. As the saying goes, you know, Jesus doesn't have opinions. He was the creator and the creation in the same place. One of the things that's easy to miss at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is all that the claims that Jesus has to make about his, I don't know what language you want to put around it, but about his embodiment as God. He claims that he is the gate and that his teaching is the way to life. Not a way, but the way. He claims that on judgment day, people will say to him Lord, Lord, or in Greek, that's Kyrios, Kyrios, the word that was used for God. He claims also that on judgment day, people who don't know him will be sent away. Not who don't know God, but who don't know him. He claims that in the meantime, people work miracles in his name, but not in God's. And he claims that his teaching is the foundation to erect your life on. No rabbi had ever said that before. It was common to call the Torah a foundation for your life. No teacher had ever said his teaching is the foundation. That for a Jewish rabbi would have been blasphemy or at least delusional megalomania unless you were more than just a rabbi. You were the creator and the creation in the same place. You were the beautiful mind behind the universe itself come into said universe to bring it back into union with the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace that we call God. My point is, these are not the claims of a Bhagwanish teacher who has lost his mind. They are the claims of the Creator who knows better than any of us how the creation, i.e. you, me, our body, our sexuality, our relationships, money, interpersonal conflict, anxiety, religion, spiritual practices, all of it, how we are to thrive, which is why the ultimate kind of invitation of Jesus is to believe, or a number of scholars argue a much better English translation of that Greek word, it's pistis, is not believe in the sense of rearrange kind of the mental architecture of your mind, but to trust. That's really what that word means. We are to trust in Jesus, to lean the weight of our life on his teaching, And mental maps, not only to reality, but to the life that we crave. To end, your house is your life. Everybody builds a life. We can't not. The question is not, are you building a life? But what or who are you building your life on? Your career, your image, your social media account, your marriage or your children. Your spiritual persona, your pleasure, I mean, travel, it could be anything, it could be good, it could be evil, it could be in-between. What are you building your life on? You know, this very hard time that we are all living through, but you feel it in an especially, I think, acute way in New York. It is, it is suffering. Like this, we're living through a global pandemic, an economic, all this stuff. It is a form of suffering. But the gift of any form of suffering, any storm in Jesus' language, is it has the potential to expose our foundations, or to put that into the language of psychology, to detach and set us free from our attachments, just meaning attachments, just meaning the things that we think and feel that we need to live a happy and safe life. Life. Thomas Keating called them our emotional programs for happiness. Calvinists call them our idols. Whatever you want to call it, we all have our idols, our, our emotional programs, our attachments, this thing, these people, these careers, this data, this upward thing that we think we need. And then when it is stripped away, we feel like it's over and we've lost it all. But what if that, what if this season that we're living through, what if the pain and the discomfort and the loss and the grief that so many of you are feeling right now, man, I have deep compassion for you. My heart goes out to you. It's a hard time. But what if this could be the turning point? What if this could be the chance to rebuild your life, not just to rebuild your career, rebuild your but to rebuild your life on Jesus himself and on practicing his way? That that could turn this year that we're all just like, it's just me. I'm just like, can COVID be over? Can I hug people again? Can I eat at my favorite restaurant again? Can we have church again with, can I, we sing and not have it? Like, I just, can it be over? Like, I just want to fast forward to whenever, you know? But what if this year, what if this could be the turning point in our spiritual formation and our spiritual journey? What if this could be the year where really the foundations are exposed? And as we rebuild, not just our country and not just our church, but our life in it, in the months and years to come, what if we were to rebuild on Jesus, on practicing the way of Jesus? And what if we were to flourish and thrive like a wise man or woman who is living in the kingdom of God with Jesus? Love to all of you.